Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Beck, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, I have the great privilege of talking with United States Marine Corps EOD retired Captain Carl Josidas. Carl, welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Well, thank you, Sherry, and hi again. Yes. Well, Carl, um, I would love for you to tell our listeners um, where you grew up, and um, it's it's just a real treat to speak with you. So we'd love to start there and find out where you where you grew up. All right. Thanks, Sherry. Uh, I grew up in the near south side of Chicago. My summers were spent uh, with my grandparents' farm in South Dakota, and my winters and schooling was in the great city, the windy city of Chicago. Uh, I was a child of the Great Depression. I was born in 1935. That's about halfway between 1929 and 1941, which is the heart of the Great Depression. I was born in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, my father was from Chicago. My mother was from South Dakota. My dad had run away from home when he was 13 and become a merchant marine and was hoboing through South Dakota when he met my mother. And he got married and had us three oldest kids, my brother Frank, my sister Dolores, and me. During the Depression, the um, work was hard in, in South Dakota, and Dad was either working or not working, and so he knew if he went back to Chicago, he could get a job. So he hitched a ride on a freight train and went back to Chicago and started working in the tunnels that were going to be the future subways of Chicago. And then he brought my ma and us three oldest into Chicago in 1941. Oh, excuse me, it's 1940. And uh, we settled on the near south side of Chicago where they eventually bought a home. And I was raised most of the time in Chicago. Went to high school in Chicago. Uh, at a technical school, which they don't have anymore. But it was an all-boys school, and we learned a lot of trade. <laughs> Trays that are not around anymore. Mm -hmm. We had uh, woodwork. We had auto. We had uh, ROTC. Uh, We even had a range, a rifle range in the basement of school. I don't know if it's there anymore. Uh, Crane Tech became co-ed during the 60s, I think. And so now it's a regular high school. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's see. And that's that's about it. Okay. Oh, I forgot. I was nine years old and in grammar school when the teacher came up to me and asked me why I wasn't doing a lesson that was written on on the blackboard. (laughs) I explained to her that I couldn't see the blackboard and I didn't know there was something written on it. I was busy drawing a pirate ship. So she said, come up to the uh, where you can see the board and I'll put you in a chair right there. Well, I walked all the way up to the table in front of the class, and that's where I could see the board. <laughs> so she made a, sent a note home with me to my mother to take me to an eye doctor. Uh, 
So that's when I got my first pair of glasses. Uh, and even in the Marine Corps, I was legally blind without my glasses. So I had to carry at least two pair of glasses with me. Uh, even in combat, I carry two pair with me. Most of the time, I carried three, two regular pair and a pair of sunglasses because my eyes were so bad. Uh, that was changed when I had cataract surgery and they corrected my vision. But what I'm getting at is that I didn't know, and nobody knows as a child, if you've got bad eyes. Mm -hmm. I would see people on the other side of the street from me that would wave at me to say hello. I didn't know who they were, but I could see their arm waving, so I'd wave back at them. And, and it just, <laughs> so I missed a lot of my early life by not being able to see what everybody else could see. Mm -hmm. So, wow. yeah, it, it was... Uh, it it was a problem, but then once I got my glasses, nobody could take my glasses off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that opened a whole new world for you. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, well, it sounds like you kind of grew up um, in a very humble, humble beginnings and um, also in two worlds, really, in South Dakota and Chicago. Did you did you have one that you liked more than the other or or? What was your take oh, on yes. that as a, as a child? <laughs> I would have to say South Dakota was much better than the grime of Chicago. Uh -huh. Back in, in my time in Chicago, we had the stockyards. So in the summertime or in the springtime, if the wind was blowing from the south, we got to smell the beautiful aroma of, of the stockyards. <laughs> and now I noticed in Chicago that they have boat trips on the rivers. In my time, we didn't even like to walk across the bridges because you didn't know what you would see floating in the rivers of Chicago, either the Chicago River or the Illinois River. Oh wow! So it was not it was not a thing to be boating on. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Not in my time. Not in your time, huh? So but South Dakota was mm -hmm. different. It was the farm. It was on the prairies, and and. Uh, Everybody had uh, a job to do, and everybody was doing their job, and it was just one big family affair. So it, it was um, uh, quite a change mm -hmm. from uh, one to the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time with your grandparents in South Dakota, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And I was named after, actually, I was named after my, both my grandparents, uh, Carl on my mommy's side and uh, Michael on my daddy's side. Oh. So both my grandparents gave me their, their name, and oh, that was pretty nice. neat. That is very nice. Very nice. So um, do you think that, you know, growing up in the Great Depression and certainly, you know, your parents um, experiencing the majority of that as young adults, but um, do you think it contributed to who you are today and helped you in life? Oh, certainly, certainly. I, I, uh, the, um, a lot of things come to mind, but one, one primary thing is that we didn't know we were poor. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think any of the, uh, folks on the South side of Chicago thought they were poor either. Mm -hmm. We always had food. It might be um, uh, bologna and peas and a, and a milk sauce, but uh, but we, we always had something to eat. And and there was a lot of um, neighborly neighborhood gatherings. And 
it, it was pretty neat growing up, really, mm-hmm. even though we didn't have a lot of things that, that are, are present today. Right. Right. Yeah. My mom, my mom was born in 1935 as well. And she used to say that um, when we talked about her, her very humble childhood, she said, you know, Sherry, we never knew that we were poor. Um, And we always had food. Mom, mom and dad always made sure that we had something to eat. And we all worked hard. We all played hard. We all worked, you know, worked in the fields. We did what we had to do, but we never knew that we were poor. No, we mm-hmm. did. We did not. We had in South Dakota. We had no electricity. Mm-hmm. We had no running water. We had an outhouse, and being on the plains of uh, South Dakota, they didn't have any wood to burn. So what they burned was corn cobs from last year's harvest. Mm-hmm. And one day, as I think it was on my first trip out there, I think I was seven years old and. Uh, I was standing in the kitchen by the cook stove, and Grandma Grandma told me to go out and pick some cobs. And I put my hands on my hips, and I said, that's woman's work. (laughs) My aunties did not like my remark, and I was, ended up (laughs) picking a bushel of cobs for the stove. <laughs> I bet you never said that again, huh? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, well, Carl, um, tell me about your recollection of December 7th, 1941. I know that you were just a young boy, but can you can you recall um, what oh, happened yes, that day? Oh, yes, I can. Day? Okay. It, uh Actually, we live well. We uh, it was just before we bought the house that we I grew up in. Uh, we were living in a basement apartment in, on Loomis Street in Chicago, and it was Sunday morning. Uh, Ma Ma called us all in because her favorite radio show was a show called Hawaii Calls, and she didn't miss it on a Sunday morning and called us in. Well, it's midday Sunday. Mm-hmm. And called us three kids in and said, they've just bombed Pearl Harbor, and we are at war. And it really didn't ring as much to me what she said as what she looked like. She was, you, it was fear in her face that was the thing that stuck in my memory. Mm-hmm. And then, then the radios after that. Uh, would announce that Wake still stands, which was Wake Island, mm. uh, which was on the next target from uh, the Japanese raids. So that's how the war started in my mind. Mm-hmm. Just the fear in my mother's face. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I yeah. What a what a place and time in history. Right. Um, yes. Wow. Well, growing up. Um, you decided that you were going to um, join the military, but in a in a non traditional way, or more, um, you weren't going to you weren't going to go the draft way, <laughs> getting your draft. That's correct. So um, you kind of rebutted that a little bit and um, describe your journey about actually entering the military and some of your experiences in Vietnam and and. All of those things. 
All right. Well, in uh, <laughs> October of 1957, I turned 22 years old. And in my time, uh, there was a choice. You're either going to go into the Army or you're going to go into another service. But you were going to spend two years in the military. The draft was uh, a big-time thing. We all looked, actually looked forward to getting our draft card because that said you were 18 years old. But when I got my – well, at first, I didn't get a draft notice. I, I got my uh, selected service uh, appointment to get my physical. Mm-hmm. So I went down and – got my physical, and then I thought to myself that, no, I'm not joining no Army for two years. I'll show them. Remember, I'm a kid from the South Side. I'll show them guys. I'll join the Marine Corps for three. So I showed them. But what I did, I was driving a cab at the time. So I had to go downtown to the post office, the main post office in Chicago on the fourth floor. I think it was the fourth floor. Here I am in my uh, cab driving uniform with my <laughs> cover on, and it's got a yellow bill on it because I'm driving for a yellow cab. So I walk into the recruiter's office, and the office is empty. There's nobody there. So I plop down on, on the corner of his desk, and his gunnery sergeant in full blues walks in, and he says, can I help you? And I says, yeah. I'd like to see how to get in this outfit. And he looked at me and he says, I'll tell you as soon as you get your GD ass off my desk. <laughs> and that's how I was introduced to the Marine Corps. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's funny. My sister took me down or took me to the airport, which was Midway Airport in Chicago in, in February, sleet and snowing, and put me on a four-engine prop-driven airplane to fly me out to California, which was my first airplane ride. Mm-hmm. We flew all night and landed in in sunny California, away from the cold, the, the snow, the sleet, and the ice, to, to see the, the beautiful Pacific Ocean and everything. It was just mm-hmm. amazing. Till I got on that bus and was seated, and this young corporal walked in, he, closed the doors, and then all hell broke loose. And welcome to the Marine Corps and boot camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, were, your, were your parents still alive when you oh, entered yes. the Marine Corps? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they, they, were, uh, they were alive. Well, my sister had gone into the Air Force for uh, two years. Okay. Uh, and my brother had gone into the Coast Guard for four years, so they had they've seen their their kids go. Right. And so I was I was just a third in line. So mm-hmm. it it was not um, uh, how would you say um, heartbreaking. It's just the fact that it's what everybody expected. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, it was an expectation that you were going to mm-hmm. serve at least two years at that time. Yeah. At least two years. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, you tell a funny story about um, you being with the drill instructors and, and a time in the chow hall. You want to share that with us? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> well, everybody has a boot camp story. And because of my name, Jositis, 
my nickname from the DIs in boot camp was disease. Oh, no. And anytime somebody yelled disease, I knew they were talking to me. Well, we were standing in the uh, mess hall line getting ready to go in and eat. And you got to picture this, that there's tables uh, in between two lines of Marines going in to the mess hall. And then one line splits off to the right, going down the chow line, and the other one splits off to the left, going down the chow line. And for some reason, got to remember now, I'm I'm older than the 17, 18, and 19-year-olds mm-hmm. that are in boot camp. I'm 22. So something struck me funny. <laughs> I have no idea to this day what it was, but I had a smirk on my face. And I hear the drill instructor yell, disease! Yes, sir. He said, what's so funny? And I said, nothing, sir. And that was the end of it. He said, I'll tell you what, I want you to get up on one of these tables and face the, the, left, uh, the right side of the mess hall and laugh for five minutes, <laughs> doing about face and laugh to the other side of the mess hall. So I get up on the table and I'm looking at this clock on, on the far wall. And I start, hee-haw, hee-haw, hee. And then I look down, and all these recruits are looking at their plates. They're not looking at me. They're not laughing. They're afraid that they're going to be up there next to me if they say anything. Uh So by the time my first five minutes were up, I did laugh. (laughs) And when I made my about face, I was dead in laughter. And that's when I was commanded to get off the table and get back in line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you have any conversations with any of those folks after that? Like they were like, "What in the heck were you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it, it was probably a given. Uh-huh. Somebody somebody is going to be penalized, and this time it was me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's too funny. Um, well, what was your what was your first job in the military, Carl? My well, my first my first assignment was C school. Okay. Uh, in in those days, uh, actually, from seventeen seventy five until about what nineteen ninety something, uh, one of the duties of the Marine Corps was at sea. Mm-hmm. Every uh, light cruiser cruisers. Uh, aircraft carriers and uh, battleships all had a Marine detachment aboard. And so all the boot camp, you were assigned, uh, if you if you applied for it, you could go to sea school and you would get a set of blues because regular Marines did not get blues. You could buy blues, but you were not issued blues. So after boot camp, uh, I went to the uh, infantry training, and then from the infantry training regiment, ITR, I went to Cisco, which was right back in San Diego at, at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. And at Cisco, you're taught how to be, well, how to live aboard ship. You're in a you're in a regular building, but you but you have bulkheads and you have decks, and you have portholes instead of windows. And you have uh, longitudinal uh, bulkheads and transverse bulkheads. You you live on in this building like you were aboard ship. 
to to give you the idea of what living aboard ship was. And so then I was uh, given my assignment to the USS Los Angeles, and I was aboard ship for uh, remaining two years of my three years on the USS uh, Los Angeles, which was a heavy cruiser. We uh, did uh, interior security for the ship. That's what the Marines' mission was. We uh, had charge of one of the gun mounts. Ours was a uh, three-inch 50 uh, mount forward of, of the eight-inch guns that were our main barracks. So we actually lived as Marines in a sailor's environment. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty interesting. I was sad to see him do away with seagull marines because that was the uh, mission the main mission for forming the marine corps Mm -hmm. but but we don't have them anymore right right um yeah i think we when we talked earlier we talked about it being called soldiers of the sea is that correct yes Mm -hmm. that that's exactly what we were that's what a marine is is a soldier of the sea Mm -hmm. that that is his official title no matter what country you're at mm-hmm. and um, it, was, it was very interesting you're in a marine detachment you took care of the brig you also uh, stood watch and you were also in charge of the um, what we called a zulu locker which was the nuclear warheads that would have went on our missiles had we had to launch one of our regular missiles mm-hmm. so it was um you you become a salty marine. <laughs> you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Literally, right? <laughs> yes, literally. Yes, yes. Yeah. It, okay. Um, well, you you said you spent two years on the Los Angeles, and yes. then you were discharged from the Marine Corps in in January of 1961. What um, what led you back to returning to the service? Going back to Chicago. <laughs> Oh, what was Chicago like? Yeah. Well, well, Chicago was the same Chicago, and Mm -hmm. it was the same dirty Chicago. And uh, I had been halfway around the world. I had seen different countries. I've seen different places. And I'm back on basically the south side of Chicago. And Mm -hmm. I decided this is not quite what I wanted to do. So I went down and uh, re-enlisted. And the uh, recruiter said, uh, where would you like to go? And I said, well, I haven't been to the East Coast. Uh, How about sending me to the East Coast? And he said, not a problem. How does Camp Lejeune sound to you? I said, I don't know, but it's going to be different. Uh So I went to Camp Lejeune, and I was a member of the assigned me to uh, Weapons Platoon, uh, Lima Company, or L Company, uh, 2nd Battalion, 8 Marines. And I knew right away that I did not like the South. And you got to keep in mind, this is the early 60s in the South. Mm-hmm. And everybody basically hated each other, and nobody gave this kid from the south side of Chicago a program to let him know who to hate and who not to hate. Right. So mm-hmm. it seems that they were hating everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately for me, uh, they, the Marine Corps, in its wisdom, decided to make the uh, 2nd Battalion twice its size, 
with the idea that they were going to split it down the center and make two battalions out of it. So they increased the numbers of the battalion, which is where I was at. And then they were going to make this big split, but they realized that they needed somebody for casual company, which is what they called the people that were getting ready to rotate. And I was, of course, the Seagull Marine. That was pretty salty. And so they decided that, or somebody at the company office thought that I had already been with the outfit for a year. So I got a set of orders to go to Casual Company. And Casual Company's job was to fulfill the request for people to go someplace else. When you did your time uh, on station, then it was time for you to be transferred. There was places that would request Marines. And and that is what Casual Company did. They they formed a base to send these people out. And so I got ready to get orders. And they sent me up to the Guard Detachment in Yorktown, Virginia, as a security guy, as a security Marine. Uh, I had a uh, top-secret clearance because we had nuclear weapons aboard the L.A., and all of us had a, had a uh, clearance. But I did not have a background investigation to go with it, but they sent me to Yorktown anyway. And so I said goodbye <laughs> to Camp Lejeune <laughs> and went up to Yorktown, Virginia, which was just as bad as being around <laughs> Camp Lejeune. <laughs> In fact, it might have been it might have been a little worse. I think they were there. It was a little harder. Uh, well, let me put it just this way: mm-hmm. even uh, Yorktown sits in the Hampton Roads area right. of Virginia. It's on a peninsula, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of military bases on it. Mm-hmm. There's Fort Monroe. There's Langley. There's, um, of course, Yorktown. There's Estes. There's but even the dependents in town hated the military. Oh, wow. And it, it, I mean, if you went into a restaurant and there was a dependent waiting on you, she couldn't care less about you. Mm-hmm. They even did a $2 payday while, while I was there to show the populace around the bases that this is where your money's coming from. That's mm-hmm. what they did in those days. $2, to, Carl? To, well, what they would do is they'd pay you. You were paid in cash, so they would pay everybody in $2 bills. Uh-huh. So when you looked in town, every store, every tattoo parlor, every bar uh, had a cash register full of $2 bills. <laughs> and that was that was the military's way of saying, listen, this is where your money's coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Whether it did any good or not, I don't know. Right, they were trying to say, "Hey, we're we're supporting the economy, basically." Yes, you know? basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So while I was at Yorktown, Virginia, my year there is almost up, and we would have these um, requests for orders, and they'd call us all into the classroom, and they'd say, "Okay, we've got." a request for, in my case, it was a request for one corporal over four years, meaning that it was a corporal that was in line to be a career Marine. 
And it, so it was one corporal over four for all the guard detachments on the East Coast to go to a place called Indian Head, Maryland, in EOD school. And, of course, my hand went up. Mm-hmm. I'll take those orders. So they put me in to go to EOD school. At the time, I had no concept and no idea. I didn't even know what EOD spelled, mm-hmm. let alone what they did. But I knew it was a ticket out of Yorktown, Virginia. Yeah. So they tell me I'm going to leave in, I think it was July. And July comes along, and I don't have any orders. So we have another meeting, and they said, we've got a request for three Marines to go to Camp Pendleton. Well, I know Camp Pendleton's on the West Coast. So I'm going to Camp Pendleton. So I raised my hand. I said, okay, Josias, you're going to Camp Pendleton. Well, I was the, I got my checkout slip, and I was checked out of most of the places on Yorktown, and I was the corporal to guard on the Ford 8. I'm sitting at the desk, and the phone rings, and it's my first sergeant. As soon as I get off post, he wants to see me. So, okay, fine. Then the phone rings again, and it's a duty NCO, and he says that the commanding or the CO, my CO, wants to see me, the captain. So, okay, fine. I'll see him after I see the first sergeant. Then Mainside calls me and says the sergeant major wants to see me over on Mainside. And I said, well, these guys all want to sign my checkout steps, so that must be popular. So then I get a call that the colonel wants to see me. And I said, boy, either I'm... They want to say goodbye or I'm in trouble. You're in big trouble, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So first up is my first sergeant. And so I, after I get off duty, I walk and report to my first sergeant. I'm standing in front of his desk, and, he, and he's got my record book in front of him. And he says, why are you turning down EOD school? And I said, I didn't know I had EOD school. And he says, yes, it's right here in your record book. Didn't you see all these messages? I said, first sergeant, I haven't seen my record book since I got here. <laughs> it goes in your file, not my file. And he says, well, there's a lot of messages getting you a background, investiga- a background investigation for your top secret clearance, and you're going to UD school. And I said, well, nobody told me that. And he said, well, are you turning it down to go to California, or are you going to go to EOD school. And I said, I'm going to go to EOD school. So he said, okay. And I said, now I got to go see the captain. He said, no, the captain doesn't want to see you. And I says, how about Sergeant Major? No, Sergeant Major don't want to see you either. How about the colonel? No, the colonel. All they wanted to do is make sure that I didn't turn this school down. Mm -hmm. And so they were all going to give me the good old father to son talk to go to EOD school instead of like an idiot go to Camp Pendleton in the 1st Marine Division. <laughs> so then he set me up with Navy EOD on, on the base to go out and see what EOD does. Well, <laughs> I went over there and seen the chief, and yeah, I seen what they did. They took me out, we blew up some beaver dams, and then we blew up a couple stills that the uh, the feds wanted EOD to blow up. Well, that's a pretty neat job. (laughs) I get to blow blow things up. Nobody can ask for better than that. Mm -hmm. 
So that's how I got into EOD school. Okay. And then I found out what EOD meant, explosive ordnance disposal. And I found a home. All right. All right. Well, um, there there was a test that you took early, um, I guess, when you entered when you entered the service um, called a pattern analysis test that actually helped your score be over and above or unique or really it made you stand out. Do you tell us what that is, Carl? I will. It was years later I found out why of all the corporals over four years on the East Coast and guard detachment, I got the orders for Indian Head. And it all came down to a test called pattern analysis that you took in boot camp. And what it was is it uh, was pictures in drawings of a, a cube, say, with a hole in it. And then you had three other other views of it, and you had to pick which one of those other three views were exact for what you were looking at. And I thought it was a stupid <laughs> test <laughs> because I went through it in about a minute's time because it was simple. Mm-hmm. But that was a test that... I scored so high on that the Marine Corps thought that it was worth the money to send me to EOD school. Mm -hmm. And so that's what beat out. It wasn't the fact that I was the best-looking corporal in in the dark guard detachments. It was that I passed that test with flying colors, and -hmm. it would have me look at fuses uh, to see the gears going around this way and that way. Right. Much more analytical, right? I mean, that was, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And and certainly, I think your artistic abilities and you know your creative side probably contributed that to that too, uh, scoring so high on that. So that's cool, very cool story. Um, well, in 1963, you graduated from EOD school in Indian Head, Maryland, and your first tour was in Oka- Okinawa. Well, I uh, I went to. Um my first assignment was a third EOD platoon in on Okinawa with mm-hmm. the 3rd Marine Division and uh, as a uh, young corporal. And the um, Okinawa had a... Um, ne- the 3rd Marine Division needed to keep a battalion landing team afloat uh, throughout the year. Mm-hmm. The, uh, so they had a battalion aboard ships ready to land at any given time, like a force in readiness. And so one of the jobs of the EOD platoon was to have a two-man EOD team support that battalion. So you would you would sail for a couple of months uh, out on the water, then come back to Okinawa, work the Okinawan ranges. And that is the time that um, in 64, uh, one of the deployments was off the coast of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I thought we were going to land in Vietnam. But uh, it was the uh, overthrow of one of the uh, leaders of South Vietnam, DM, I think it was. Anyway, uh, I thought we were we were going to land. They, they broke out all the ammunition, put the ammunition in the compartments. I went topside, threw my helmet over the side, said, we're going to war, and all of a sudden, no, they said, you're not. We went back to Okinawa. Now, the um, 
Green Berets that were stationed on Okinawa were going into country on a three-month tour. And we had advisors going into country, uh, but the Marines were still stationed on Okinawa. And in January of 65, I was rotated. I had spent, I extended in Okinawa for six months, so I actually spent 19 months there. Mm-hmm. So in January of 65, it's my time to go back to the States. I get orders for Marine Corps Station El Toro. So I get on a ship, <laughs> the USS Breckenridge, God rest its soul, mm-hmm. and um, went to uh, Marine Air Station. At about March of 65, the Marines from the 3rd Marine Division land at a place called Da Nang, Vietnam. I just had 18 months or 19 months of getting to go, not to go, to go, not to go. So I said, you can't start that war without me. <laughs> and he said, no, you can't go, Carl. You've got to stay here. And you have to have a year on station. Well, there's got to be a way out on that. So one day at the, or one evening at the staff, or the uh, NCO club, I was talking to a career planner and I said, how do I get orders to Vietnam? And he says, when is your enlistment up? And I said, in about six months. He said, I'll tell you what, if you ship over, that means you re-enlist, I'll make sure you get orders for Vietnam. Well, I did and he did. And that fall, I went to EOD school for my uh, refresher. And in um, November of uh, 1965, I was in a place called Chu Lai with Marine Air Group 12 Mm -hmm. in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So that was the start of my first tour. Mm -hmm. What was your, what was the burning desire there, Carl? For you to, to for you to go to Vietnam, war. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, simple, you know. Right? Yeah, it is because uh, Marines, and from what I understand, most of the army. I don't know. But, uh, you train for war. Mm-hmm. You tra- you train to you train to um, uh, go go to combat or in combat at combat support. Uh, this is the mission of the Marine Corps, and uh, unlike uh, what the 60s in Vietnam depicted of the military, uh, the folks that I were, was with, uh, we were biting at the bit to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was not a... Let me put it this way. Uh, people think of uh, firemen and police officers as putting their uniform on and going and doing what their mission is. Mm -hmm. You don't see a fireman put his uniform on and then he hangs his head and looks in the corner and says, oh, I might have to put a fire out. Or the policeman saying, I might have to rescue somebody or I might have to um, assist somebody. Mm -hmm. They just they put him on and it's taken for granted that they're going to do what their job description is. And it's the same way with Marines. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, I, at that time, of course, I had, well, I was, I was 30 years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First went to July and, uh, and it was, um, to me, it was a simple existence because you're either alive or dead. Yeah. I don't mean to be, um, I, Really, it, it it's a it it's kind of a mission job orientated thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, and you, you train, and you, mm -hmm. and you also have your brothers. Yeah, you know you you have you have to sit next to somebody who has uh, gone to combat, and you and you're saying no, I don't want to go, or mm -hmm. I didn't go, or I couldn't go. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's it's just a, um, I guess, brotherhood of, of arms, I would call it. Mm -hmm. Understood. Okay. Um, well, you said that you um, were with the Marine Air Group 12 and mm -hmm. at a place called Chulai Republic of South Vietnam. Um, was this the first tour for you? Yes. This was the first tour, mm -hmm. and Marines had a and Marines had a thirteen month tour mm -hmm. uh, at first, and the reason for that was uh, the Marine Corps thought that the um, you're going to go over there by ship, like I went to Okinawa and, and returned from Okinawa. So they figured that that's a thirty day thing. Your tour starts when you leave. Uh, Connors or United States, and then in 13 months you should be back. But one of the months is probably going to be riding on a ship going to and from. So it was a um, a 13 month tour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now this is this is the Marine Corps going into combat for the first time since uh, Korea. So we had mm -hmm. a lot of growing up to do. <laughs> <laughs> The yeah. Marine EOD team at Chulai had had probably one of the first generators that kept going because the uh, air wing uh, they would do their uh, post uh, maintenance or PM and other generators, and they would start them up every month and uh, check them out or every uh, quarter, and then they would turn them off. But when they got down to Chulai, they cranked them up and they put a, a power load on them, and when they did, the generators blew up. So they had a lag in, in getting electric power where we <laughs> had our little generator and our tent had lights in it. That's a, <laughs> one of the examples of growing up to know that you're in a combat zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When our When our jungle boots came out, our supply guys didn't know if they wanted to issue them or not because we were still receiving our uh, uniform maintenance allowance. And if you were getting your uniform maintenance allowance, they had to try to think if we are supposed to buy these or we're going to be issued these. And later on, somebody, probably a, a sergeant or something, got the idea, yes, we'll issue them, so we all got our jungle boots. Yeah, that was a good day, right? <laughs> that was a good day. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Carl, you, you certainly lost some friends in, in the conflict in Vietnam, and um, some of which are on the EOD memorial wall here. Um, is, there, is, there, is there an experience that stands out 
to you um, during this time of war? Uh, not well. Uh, not really during the uh, my first tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't. If you look at the EOD Memorial Wall, we did not lose as many as they did in in, in what would have been future wars in mm-hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan. We did. We did lose, and I know each one of them, and we lost them. We lost a master sergeant before Vietnam called Buck, mm-hmm. and he got uh, burnt with a um, white white phosphorus igniter for a napalm bomb at 29 Palms and, and died, and it was questionable whether he, he died of his white phosphorus burns or the copper sulfide they used to put it out. Mm-hmm. But it is it is knowing that you're you're in a combat zone and you're doing a job that you're you're actually being paid for hazardous duty paid for because it is kind of a hazardous job. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, you did three tours total in Vietnam, and um, I know it's in 1966 you went to Hawaii for part of that. Am I correct in, yes. in saying that? In, mm-hmm. in well, in. Uh, uh, December of 66, I went to Hawaii for two years. Mm-hmm. And then from Hawaii, we had, well, we had a commandant when I was in Hawaii that came out and he says, there's three kinds of Marines. Those that are in country, those that are coming from in country, and those that are going to country. <laughs> so, so I spent two years in Hawaii uh, at Kaneohe, and then uh, my second tour which was with the um, ground forces uh, outside of Da Nang and at a place called Dong Ha, which was seven clicks south of the DMZ, which was a com- completely different mission than the air wing down at Chulai. Uh, this time we got to go out into uh, uh, on fire bases and uh, clean up ammo dumps that blow blew up, and and also uh, retrieve different types of ordnance. Uh, so it was out with the with the basic what Marines call grunts. So it was a completely different type of tour. I spent six months at uh, Dongha, and then a second six months because they felt that was enough to uh, down at Da Nang. So. Uh, it was an interesting tour, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was the tour I got my combat action ribbon in, which okay. I think we're going to talk about later. Yeah, we are. We are. So you were actually promoted to warrant officer at some point. Tell us about that. Oh, that, uh, once I left Vietnam for the second time, I went to EOD's favorite home called Indian Head, Maryland. I was uh, stationed at uh, with the... Um, Navy, uh, what we called EOD facility, which was uh, uh, research and development for the EOD field for the different services. I was a member of the Marine Liaison Office. There was um, our uh, liaison officer who was a captain, uh, Master Gunnery Sergeant Potter, who was our NCOIC, and then two others, me and and George Winfield was was my second one. 
And there I filled the desk as the newsletter editor. And that's where the buzzer came in. Okay. Uh, the desk that I filled was uh, from uh, a guy by the name of uh, Bill Penn, P-E-N-N. Actually, his first name is Dennis, but all of us called. All, that's another surprising story. And I don't know if it happens today in a Marine Corps, uh, but in my time, uh, Marine enlisted always had were called by their last name, or a fictitious name. <laughs> I I was called Joe throughout my Marine Corps career. Really? Till I became an officer, and then I was called Carl. Mm -hmm. um, but I was called Joe because of Jositis. Mm -hmm. And Bill Penn's name was Dennis, but we called him Bill. Mm -hmm. Peter Potter's name was Richard W. Potter, but everybody called him Pete Potter. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I, I really don't uh, I really don't know where that came in, but in, enlisted seemed to call everybody by their last name or a uh, fictitious name. Uh -huh. So That's my great. wife says she always knew if whoever was calling knew me in the military or knew me in civilian life, because if they knew me in the military, they say, "Hey, Joe." Uh -huh. And if they knew me in civilian life, they say, "Hey, Carl." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But, <laughs> Bill Penn, uh, I Bill Penn and I. Well, let me back up a little bit. The Marine Corps EOD field at the time was was very small compared to what it is today. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a hundred and thirty five members of Marine EOD, uh, including officers and enlisted. So the field was a lot smaller because I spent two years on Okinawa. I met a lot of the East Coast Marine and the West Coast Marines. When I got to Indian Head, Maryland, where everybody came up and uh, went to refresher, I got to meet a whole bunch more. As the newsletter editor, I got to know just about everybody. In fact, I started putting a roster of all Marine EOD uh, in the newsletter every month on where they were stationed or whether they were en route from one station to another station. That's how small we were. Mm -hmm. So we knew each other. Uh, Bill Penn uh, was an artist, or is an artist. I think he, uh, I haven't talked to him in years, but um, I think he was teaching art in, somewhere in Maryland. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was the one to come up with the Eagle bomb or the, the buzzard. Um, it's called. It's now called a buzzard bomb and pick. But I and my my uh, generation called just called it the buzzard. He was the one that did an ink and uh, pen and ink drawing of it, and that's what we had on the cover of our newsletter. Was Bill Penn's uh, buzzard? He also drew cartoons when he was the editor, and he drew cartoons when I was the editor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's where the buzzard was born. And I seen it, of course, on a newsletter when I was in Vietnam, so I painted a couple buzzards in, in my time in Vietnam. And then when I got to Indian Head, I, uh, I made a plaque, a buzzard plaque, and... and uh, and I gave it to uh, Donald Pitcher, uh, who I met 
at um, uh, when he was uh, in charge of VOD school for the Marines there at Eglin. Mm-hmm. And um, for when he re- rotated, I I gave it to him. I, I, <laughs> I made it in 1970. Where were you in 1970? <laughs> he just kind of looked at me. Anyway, uh, and then I, I it was the first time I put him on canvas. And then from there, I started painting the buzzard. Mm-hmm. And when I retired, pretty much the buzzard retired. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, well, your time time doing some of those collateral duties was was a good time for you, though. <laughs> oh yes, mm-hmm. yeah. It, and getting to meet so many different people. Um, I mean, connecting with with the Marines since they were so small, um, one hundred and thirty five strong, but. Um, you also worked with other military members from other countries as well um, in your time in service. Oh yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, um, I, mm-hmm. when I when I left Indian Head, I went back to Vietnam again with Marine Air Group Twelve, and I worked on the Vietnamese side of the runway, and I had a Vietnamese EOD team. And I actually had an Air Force EOD team with one Air Force guy assigned to me. And but the the other two members of the of the Air Force EOD team would fly in for thirty days at a time and fly out uh, to Thailand. And I got got to understand that's what I would tell people when they talk about Vietnam and the Vietnamese. I'd say uh, all the Vietnamese that I met were on my side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that was at the end of the war, and mm-hmm. that is when uh, when it was it, it was slowing down. Uh, an interesting note on that tour is that I had the same truck that I had ordered when I was in July in 65. Actually, it was 66 when I ordered the truck, and it came in, mm-hmm. and it was the same vehicle that I had in 1972 at Benoit. Hmm. I'll be darned. Wow. And, and that, that vehicle rated a lot of combat stars on it. No kidding. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Wow. Carl and I have so much more to talk about, so this ends part one, and please stay tuned next week for part two. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.